the summer jobs I had as a college student was landscape construction, which wasn't my favorite, but there were some perks. I had a, a really good foreman. He was from New Zealand, and he had an amazing accent and wore great hats, and I liked him a lot. And one day, we were going, just the two of us in a truck together to a, a job site in Canmore, had some time to, to talk about things, and we had a debate as to which was the more interesting sport, American and Canadian football or cricket. And I was like, this is a slam dunk argument for me to win. I mean, I mean football is exciting. I mean, it's, 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 it, things happen, and it's violent and, and emotional. Who doesn't like football, right? And cricket, I was trying to say, I mean, who even knows the, the rules to cricket? And some of their matches take days to complete. That has to be more boring. And then he made actually a pretty good argument. He says in Canadian football, the vast majority of the game is just people standing around. And I said, oh, you're right. That's what happens in football. You have this burst of activity, and then everybody gets up and then, and then, and then stands around getting ready for the next burst of activity. And you'll watch a football game, and the vast majority of the time, it's either people standing around, or if you're watching on TV, it's either replays or commercials. That's football for you. And what they'll do is they'll finish a play and then they'll huddle up and they'll get ready for the next play. That, that play call will come in from the sideline and then they'll call the play in the huddle and, and then they're going to encourage each other. And I think they're going to talk a little bit about their dinner plans. I'm not sure everything that happens in a huddle. I know, Colter, you've played some football, right? And, any dinner plans or what's going on after the game? Any, no, not at all. Okay, that's fine. This is just what? Just ask Sawyer. Is Sawyer here today? We'll figure it out. There you go. Hey, any dinner plans? Never. Okay, fine. You can tell I haven't been in too many huddles. Not too many. And they'll spend a lot of the game there getting ready for what's next. And, and we're going to pick up our story in Acts chapter 2. And you can turn your, your Bibles to that passage as well. It'll be our story for this morning. And the apostles are having a huddle of sorts. We could call it a holy huddle. They have now had a whirlwind of activity seeing and witnessing the, the death and then the resurrection of Jesus and then, and then spending time with him for 40 days and, and watching him ascend into heaven. And they've been given this command to go to Jerusalem and to wait for what's next. And so they are huddled up and Jesus has called the next play. He says, I am sending my spirit to you. And they have this play call and they're encouraging one another and they're making dinner plans. <laughs> No, they're eating together. I'm sure that was a part of it. They're ready for what's next. But even in this, as they're preparing, I don't think even the disciples could have imagined what was about to happen. They're waiting for the Spirit. But, but as they're huddling up, they're not being passive. They're using this time productively. Uh, they've prayerfully chosen Matthias to be the 12th apostle to take the place of, of Judas, who betrayed Jesus and subsequently took his own life. And so now their number is 12 again. And on the day of Pentecost, everything changes. Now, when we as, as Christians or those who are familiar with the Christian faith read this story, we often think of the day of Pentecost as being that day when the Holy Spirit arrives, and for good reason, as we're about to find out. But for Luke and for all the initial hearers of this, Pentecost was not anything to do with the Holy Spirit. It was a Jewish festival, also called Festival of Weeks. It was this time in which they gathered together and commemorated uh, God giving the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. It was a huge and significant festival in their calendar. Pentecost literally means 50th. The reason for that is it was celebrated 50 days after the Passover. 
So the disciples had been huddled together now for 10 days, approximately. And where do we get that number? Well, we know that Jesus was crucified on um, Passover weekend. We know that he spent 40 days with his disciples. And then this is the 50th day after Passover. So if my mental math is correct, the, the disciples were waiting for about 10 days in Jerusalem before the Holy Spirit appeared. Because it was an important Jewish festival, there was groups of Jews from all over the known world, all over the Roman Empire that had gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate this festival, which becomes a very important detail in our story. Everybody was gathered in Jerusalem all across the known world. And as everyone is there, and as the disciples are waiting, the Holy Spirit arrives. And this is a powerful, impactful, and meaningful event in the life, not only of the apostles, but in the life of the church. And as the Holy Spirit descends from heaven, the very spirit and power of God, it appears to the disciples as a sound like a rushing, mighty wind from heaven. And wind is important. It's actually a very meaningful way to represent the, the presence of God. At different times in the Old Testament, we have what we call a theophany which is to say that the the presence of God manifests itself or shows itself in different ways that the human mind can understand. And one theophany would be a wind. So if we think of the book of Job, Job had undergone all of this pain and suffering, and he's asked and even demanded of God answers. And at the end of the book of Job, God responds. And he appears to Job like a whirlwind. A mighty rushing wind. That is how Job experienced the presence of God. And in a very similar way, that's how the apostles are experiencing the presence of God as the Spirit descends on them. This sound like a mighty rushing wind. Wind is also important because it's tied together to this meaning of Spirit. In the Greek language that the, old, uh, sorry, the New Testament is written in, there is the same word for wind as Spirit. That word is pneuma, which means wind, breath, or Spirit. So all of these are saying this is the Spirit of God. They're indicators explaining to us what is going on. Not only does it sound like a rushing wind from heaven, but the Holy Spirit looks like divided tongues of fire, which is something that I've never seen before, and it seems hard to grasp and to understand. Fire is also used as a theophany, as a symbol of God's presence in the Old Testament, most notably at the burning bush where Moses comes and he sees this bush that is burning but not being consumed. And as he approaches this bush, he hears a voice say, you're standing on holy ground. You're standing before the very presence of God, shown and displayed as fire. And now that very same presence of God is descending in divided tongues of fire upon the apostles. This is also connected to John the Baptist's claim in Luke 3.16, where he foretold, Uh, His followers, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so God is displaying his spirit through ways in which the apostles would have understand. This is the spirit of God. This is the promise of Jesus. This is what we have been waiting for. And it changes everything. Because not only does the Holy Spirit descend from heaven, not only does he rest upon the apostles, but he fills the apostles. 
And this sound of this mighty rushing wind drew a crowd of thousands of people to come to this house where the disciples were to see what in the world was going on. And when they get there, they encounter this spirit-filled apostles declaring the mighty works of God in many different languages. Depending on the translation you have of Scripture, it might say that they were declaring these mighty works of God in different tongues. And we could have a whole other conversation about the spiritual gift of tongues and, and what it means in the New Testament, what it looks like in the church. But that's not what this is referring to. This is not a reference to a heavenly language of tongues. This is a reference to the apostles being given the ability to speak in different languages represented by all the gathered people for this festival of Pentecost here in Jerusalem. Jews from all over the known world were gathered in Jerusalem at this time. And we know that because Luke takes great pains in verses 9 through 11. And he gives this detailed list of all these different regions and areas across the world that people were there from gathered in this city at this time. All over the world. And so these people were amazed because when they go to see what all this commotion is about, they hear preaching in their heart native language. No matter where they were from, they heard the good news of Jesus in their own language. And they were amazed and confused because they were hearing this from a bunch of uneducated backwater people from Galilee. These people who used to be fishermen, who I think were noticeably the followers of Jesus. They knew who they were. They knew where they had come from. There was no way in which they could have understood or spoken all of these different languages. Now, the reason why everyone could gather in Jerusalem was because there was a shared language. Uh, There was a trade language in the Roman Empire. It was Koine Greek, that language that the New Testament was written in, which also makes it a wonderful vehicle for the good news of Jesus in that New Testament to be spread across the world. But this wasn't a case of them hearing a trade language. It was a case of them hearing their heart language, and that adds power and impact to the gospel. A few months ago, we hosted Gideon and Cassidy Willard, a young couple, newly married, who are embarking on their own mission, uh, partnering with Ethnos uh, Canada to go to the Arctic and to plant churches that will worship in the heart language of the people. That's their burning desire. Yes, there are, are churches there, but they gather in English, and they read the Bible in English, and they teach in English, and they want to go and learn the culture and learn the language and read the Bible in the heart language and sing songs in the heart language and preach the good news in the heart language. And that gets to the soul of who we are as a people. And we see that power and that impact and that importance on that day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit arrived. So what can you do? I mean, there was a tremendous amount of chaos, and now there is something that's happening that is unexplainable by normal human terms. How could all these Galileans be speaking and preaching in these languages? And the skeptics of the crowd who had gathered said, well, they're drunk. Clearly, they are drunk. But others, who were maybe more open to the truth, who were a little more discerning that maybe God was doing something, asked a very important question in verse 12. What does this mean? What is truly going on here? Is God at work? Now, in the middle of this chaos, and it certainly would have been chaotic, this sound like a whirlwind or a hurricane, fire descending from heaven, thousands of people gathering, multiple sermons going on at the same time in many different languages, chaos. And in the middle of it steps up Peter, and he preaches a powerful 
spirit-filled sermon about the truth of what's going on and the truth of Jesus Christ. He begins by speaking to those skeptics, those who claim that the apostles are drunk. And he says that's not the case at all. And his reason, quite simple, it's only nine in the morning. <laughs> we couldn't possibly be drunk. And I know, I know there was at least one person in the back of that crowd of thousands going, it's 6 p.m. somewhere. It's a festival after all. There's got to be at least one of those guys in the crowd. But Peter's saying, no, we can't possibly be drunk. But instead of just using that argument, he makes a proactive, positive argument, one that's profound. He says, this is not what's happening. It has nothing to do with wine. It has everything to do with God and with his spirit. In fact, what you are witnessing, he says to the crowd, is fulfillment of prophecy. And Peter quotes from the um, prophet Joel. And in Joel 2, 28 to 32, for us, it's verses 17 to 21 of our passage. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter says this has nothing to do with alcohol. It has everything to do with the Lord. And it actually has something to do with the fact that there has been a prophecy that you have known for hundreds of years. And it's coming true today, right now, before your very eyes. We are in the last days, and we know that because God is evidently pouring out his spirit. We are in the last days, and yet we are still awaiting that last final day, the great magnificent day of the Lord, according to Joel. And so as Peter preaches and uses this fulfillment of prophecy, he reminds us of that paradox we learned about last week, that that the kingdom of God is already here. This is the last days. But it is not yet completely fulfilled. We are still awaiting that final magnificent day of the Lord. And in the meantime, in this church age, God has and is and will continue to pour out his spirit on all of his people. And then there is this great promise at the end of this prophecy that during this time, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. For Joel... That was a a reference to Yahweh, the one true God. And this is now a reference to Jesus, who is also the one true God. He is Lord, an argument that Peter will hammer home at the end of his sermon. He says to those who are listening, whether they are skeptical or open, that this is not to be doing anything to be uh, about being drunk. This has everything to do with being fulfilling of Scripture. And then Peter goes on to make the convincing argument that Jesus is both the Messiah the long-awaited Christ, and the Lord. Now, we have to remember that Luke gives us a very important detail, that as Peter is preaching this sermon, he is preaching to a crowd specifically of Jews, those who are ethnic Jews and those who were converted to Judaism. This is a very particular audience, and Peter is putting together a winsome and convincing argument for that specific audience. And so he will say, this is everything to do with Jesus being the Messiah, the one that you have waited for. This also has everything to do with Jesus being the Lord. He points to the resurrection of Jesus as a fulfillment of the messianic prophecy given by David in Psalm 16. And here it is quoted in verses 25 and following. 
For David says concerning him, him being Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter quotes this psalm and says, at first glance, it may look like David is talking about himself, but it's not. It can't be about David because David died and he was buried in a tomb and he remains buried to this day. But now, being full of the Holy Spirit, given the full and complete picture, uh, what Peter does is rightfully interprets this as a prophecy about the Messiah, saying David, uh, uh, David knew this. He could foresee it. He foretold that this was about Jesus, that he would be the Holy One that would not see corruption, that death could not hold back. Because Jesus is not dead. He is alive. The tomb is not full. The tomb is empty. And Peter points to himself and the other 11 is saying, we are all first-hand witnesses to the fact that this is true and this prophecy has been fulfilled for you today. Not only has Jesus conquered death, but Peter also knows that he watched him ascend into heaven, which is a fulfillment of Psalm 110, which he quotes here in verse 34. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus ascended into heaven. He is now exalted at the right hand of God. He is the one interceding in our behalf. It points to that other paradox we learned about, that that the promise of Jesus is that he is bodily absent, yet ever present in his spirit. And David knew this. He foresaw it. It was prophesied in the Old Testament, now coming completely true in the person of Jesus. So Peter is saying everything you've been waiting for as a Jewish believer in God has come true in Jesus. He is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the eternal descendant of David that will sit upon God's throne. He is the Lord. He is the same one that will, that will save you if we call upon your name. And you, he says to the people, you didn't recognize that and you crucified him. The promised Messiah and the Lord who saves was put to death by his own people. And when those who heard this sermon heard the truth of Jesus, not just as the Spirit was was working through Peter, but as the Spirit was working into the hearts of those who were listening, they were cut to the heart. In verse 37, they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. They completely understood in that moment that this was the truth, that this is exactly who Jesus was. And they did not recognize it at the time, but they recognize it now. And this is one of the main roles of the Holy Spirit to convict the world of the truth about Jesus, about sin, and about righteousness. And in this conviction, their response to the people was one of humility. They simply ask, what shall we do? You've convinced us this is true. We believe that this is who Jesus is. What can we do in response? I love Acts 2.38. It is one of the most succinct Uh, explanations of the good news of Jesus. And Peter said to them, they say, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Did you hear those words, church? 
When confronted with the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done, if you feel that same question welling up inside of you, what shall I do? Then that verse is for you. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. To repent means to confess of your sins, to admit that you have not done what you should and haven't done those things, or you have not done what you should and have done those things that you should not. And you, and you turn away from those sins. You turn your back on them so you can seek and pursue God. And to be baptized is nothing magical or mystical. It is simply this outward profession of what, what Jesus has done. He has transformed you from the inside out. And in that confession and that repentance, you have received that forgiveness. And baptism is a way of saying, I have chosen and decided to follow Jesus. You, be, you are baptized in the name of Jesus. Because as Peter has taught, those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Those who are baptized in the name of Jesus, the Lord, will be forgiven of their sins. That's why his name was Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins sins. And if you were able to do this, to, to call upon the name of Jesus, to trust him for your forgiveness of sins, to turn away from those sins and, and follow after him, then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, a gift given to all true believers in Jesus. Because as powerful and amazing as that one day was when the Spirit descended from heaven and arrived to fill and to pour into the apostles, it was not just for them. It was not even just for those who were initially listening to and responding to the good news that day. But as Peter goes on to declare in, in verse 39, the promise of the Spirit is for you and for your children and for who all are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. I love that there's a parallel here and I just love it. There's this expanding circles that we see in the Great Commission and we see in the gift and the promise of the Holy Spirit. So before Jesus ascended, he says, you're going to be my witnesses and you're going to tell people about me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the farthest ends of the earth. And as the good news travels that way, so does the gift of the Spirit. It will be for you and your children and for everyone who is far off. The good news of Jesus and the gift of the Spirit are to go to the very ends of the earth. And on that immediate day, on that day in which the Spirit arrived in a new and powerful way, 3,000 souls believed and were baptized. I can hardly imagine that number. I mean, for Peter, that's a preacher's dream. You should know that my one greatest prayer every time I get up here is that somehow, in some way, in the words that God wants to speak to you through me, that one of you, even one, would come into this saving relationship and trust in Jesus Christ. Just one. And that would make my day, my year, and my career. And I can only imagine what it would have been like to see the Spirit move and gather 3,000 people into right relationship with God. I mean, that was an explosive start to the church. And I can't wait to continue to explore what happens next as the Spirit-empowered Church of Jesus begins to take over the world. But that is a story for next week and the weeks to come. What about today? What can we take away from the story of when the Holy Spirit arrives? Well, there's two main takeaways. They're simple, but they're extremely important. The first takeaway is that the good news of Jesus is for you. Peter made an incredibly winsome and compelling argument 
for the nature of Jesus to his, his Jewish brothers and sisters. He quoted Hebrew scripture. He pointed to fulfilled prophecy. He drilled down on this expectation of a king coming from the line of David. He, he, he leaned on his firsthand account of, of being a witness to all of these things. Incredibly powerful and important argument for those who were listening from all across the known world that day. We are in a much different setting here today. We are not a gathered group of Jewish believers who, who need to be convinced that this is all part of God's plan according to the religion as they had known it up until that time. But there are still some very compelling and winsome arguments to be made about believing in who Jesus is and what it means for us today. Maybe you're sitting there and still a bit skeptical. I, I don't know how much I really care about fulfilled prophecy. I'm not sure I'm even convinced about that. And you don't have a, a firsthand account the same way that Peter did, and all of those things may be true. When we're trying to look at a compelling argument for who Jesus is and, and, and the salvation that's available to him, I think it starts with this acknowledgement of the brokenness of the world. There is brokenness all around us. There's brokenness in our lives. It's the way that the world is. And we've experienced this brokenness through guilt and through shame, through pain, through evil, through death. And we see it on, on, on the news where it seems like we're surrounded by evil and it seems like sometimes that darkness and brokenness is oppressive in our lives and our relationships and the people around us. And you don't have to have me try to convince you that this world is broken because we all know that it's true. And the question becomes, church, what do we do with this brokenness? Because we, along with everyone else, try to find ways to deal with it and to overcome it. And there's so many different avenues that we could explore. It could be the success that we feel. I can overcome this brokenness through being important or being famous or noteworthy or rich or wealthy. I, it might be coming through exploring different substances where I can escape the brokenness of this, of this world through drugs or, or alcohol or, or maybe even the satisfaction of, of sex and you can feel good for a time and maybe brokenness will fade to the background or I can build into my family and maybe I can make a better future for my kids and I can live through them and they can, ex uh, they can escape this brokenness and I'll tell you the truth because you know it to be true as well. None of these things work. They may work for a time you can feel good for a time. You can escape the brokenness for a time. But none of those things will, will help you escape brokenness truly because none of them deal with the root problem. None of them will actually fix what's broken. None of them can actually heal what's unhealthy. And when we come to a place where we can acknowledge that the world is broken, that we are broken, and we can't do anything about it, now we find ourselves at the foot of the cross. Because the root cause of brokenness is our sin. Our sin, which has created an obstacle, a barrier, it has broken that primary relationship between us and the God who created us and loves us unconditionally. That relationship is broken and it expresses itself in all these other ways. And if we are to overcome any of it, we have to fix that relationship with God. And we can't do that on our own because we are in the brokenness. We are overwhelmed by it. We are sinful and we are shackled by our sin. We can't overcome something that we are slave to. And if we try to overcome it on our own, if we try to be more religious and just do what's right and earn our own salvation, then we're just trying another thing that will never fix the root cause. We need someone else. We need something greater. And the only solution to the root cause 
of our brokenness is Jesus. The only permanent solution to this problem. Why is that? Why does he succeed where we fail? Because he and he alone was perfect. Because Christ and Christ alone succeeded where we failed. Overcame temptation where we gave in. He never sinned. And as he was perfect, he not only modeled perfection, but he brought his perfection to the cross. And on the cross, when he was unjustly tried and and, and convicted for sins that he alone never committed, he took on the weight of the sins of the world and he died. And he died not only to help us be inspired, not only to feel better, he died so that the root cause of the brokenness of this world could be solved, could be healed, could be put back together. Our sins are forgiven. You are forgiven. So to escape brokenness is to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and to live in the freedom that he brings. Everything else, and you can try it if you want, everything else falls short. Nothing else solves the problem of brokenness except for Jesus. And the goal is to use this freedom to go and sin no more, leaving sin and brokenness behind. Do you believe this to be true? Does this argument for Jesus sound compelling? Does it reflect the truth of what you see in the world and what you know to be true in your heart? Does this argument sound familiar? Because in many ways, I didn't talk about Old Testament prophecy. I didn't come at it from a Jewish point of view, but it's a modern message that echoes the exact same message of Peter. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. My prayer today, like every other time I'm up here, is that you would believe. The good news of Jesus is for you, but that also means that the gift of the Holy Spirit is for you. Because as Peter declares, when you place your trust and belief in the name of Jesus, he gifts you the Holy Spirit. It was true for the apostles and all those who believed on the day of Pentecost. And it's true for you and for me and for all who repent and trust in Jesus today. From this day forward, when you believe, that Holy Spirit dwells within you and nothing can ever take that away. You have forgiveness and you have victory and you have life. You have healing for the brokenness that the world has Now, the way that Luke explains this is through the language of pouring and through filling. The Spirit is poured out by God on all flesh in Joel chapter 2. And it is poured out on the apostles in verse 33 of Acts 2. And and, and earlier on, the the apostles are filled with the Holy Spirit in verse 4. And God does the pouring, and we as the people, we are just receiving it. We are being filled up like a vessel being filled with water. And while it is true, that we receive the Spirit when we believe in Jesus Christ. We can think of it as an event in our life where we believe and then we receive. There is also a true sense that we are called to a continual filling of the Spirit. Again, a process as we live our lives, as we go from here. What do we do with that point? Is this a a once and for all event? Something significant and unreversible happens there. But we are called to be continually filled. It's the language that that Paul uses in Ephesians 5.18. Oh man, if I can get this, this would be great. Did I leave myself a bookmark? Nope. Here, put it up there. It's behind me, right? There we go. And do not get drunk with wine. The end. No. For that is debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. It's interesting 
Both Acts 2 and Ephesians 5 contrast this idea of being filled with wine, being filled with the Spirit. And I think something is important here because in Ephesians 5.18, a Greek tense, it becomes very important. And I know you're just saying, oh, goody. I woke up this morning, I said, I hope Pastor Andrew talks about Greek tenses. You're welcome. The tense used here is present imperative, meaning that in this moment, it is imperative that you are filled with the Spirit. And that means in the next moment, it is imperative that you are filled with the Spirit. And in the next moment, in the next moment, in the next moment, we are always continually, every moment of every day, to be filled with the Spirit. So if we think of this as a once-and-done thing, then we are missing the opportunity. We're missing the point. We need to be continually filled with the Spirit of God. That's the promise that the apostles were, were experiencing that we can experience too today. Christians are to keep their lives open, to be filled constantly and repeatedly by the divine Spirit. So let the Holy Spirit fill you. We have this, this opportunity, this analogy already given to us because it's, it's about being filled with the Spirit like, like a vessel would be filled with water. So this is not my object lesson. I think it comes straight from the text and the story that we're listening to, that we learn from today. So what does this mean? We want to be continually filled. And there are some obstacles, the things that get in the way of us really truly experiencing this promise in full. So if we are going to be filled, just like I would fill some of these bottles with water, sometimes we come to a vessel that's empty, but it's closed. There's a lid on top of this bottle. It's empty, but it's closed. And so it's very hard for me to fill this bottle with water. You're coming here today. Perhaps you are very skeptical of faith. You might have found yourself in the story, one of those who would be in the crowd saying, they're just drunk. I'm not sure I believe in any of this. I'm not sure I believe who Jesus is, who he said he was. I'm not sure I found your argument that compelling. And you would be closed to being filled with the Spirit. But I think there are many of us who have grown up in the church and we've accepted that gift of the Spirit. But this idea of being continually filled is something that may be foreign to us. Because we think of this as a once and done event in the past and doesn't have to continue to happen. And we could be very skeptical of this filling of the Spirit. We've seen other people in other church traditions and, and things that happen that make us uncomfortable. Or maybe things that have even been, been hurtful or harmful to us. And we say, that's not for me. I want to be safe and secure. I've got this, all the spirit I need. No thanks. I don't need any more. We too are closed. That's one obstacle. Well, the second is if to be filled with the spirit. Now, now we have a bottle that has no lid, but it's already full. The problem is, is it's full with something else. This is what Paul is getting to in Ephesians 5. Do not be filled with wine but instead be filled with the Spirit. We may be open. We may be saying, okay, pastor, I get it. I'm going to go ask God to fill me up. But when the Spirit is there, the Spirit's saying, make room for me in your life. You're already full of, of distractions and busyness. You're already full of other influences that are more important than me. In the same way, it'd be very hard for me to fill this bottle anymore because it's already full. So are there things in our lives that are impeding this continual filling of the Spirit? Where do we need to be? What posture do we need to have? Well, we truly need to be like this final bottle of water, to be empty and to be open. 
We need to be open. We need to be willing to allow the Spirit to continually fill us. That starts with belief and trust in who Jesus is. And it continues with this openness to say, God, even if you want to do something that's scary or, 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 or hard for me and pushes me out of my comfort zone, I am willing to be filled by you. And it also means we push aside these distractions and all of these obstacles, whether it's sin or whether it's good things that become too important to us and saying, God, I'm going to leave room for you to continually fill me in my life. Each and every day, each and every morning, I begin by saying, God, today I want to be filled by you in a real, new, and complete way. And what would our lives look like if we had this filling? Are we willing to be open? Are we willing to be empty? Because when we are that at the foot of the cross, we are saved and we are filled. Let's pray. Father God, it is your mighty works that were proclaimed on that day of Pentecost. It is your mighty works that we continue to proclaim today through our singing of who you are, And the mighty works of what you accomplished through your son, Jesus. That's the good news. That's the gospel that gives us life. It gives us healing from our brokenness. God, I pray that that we would hear these words of truth and believe. God, I pray that we would also go from here not thinking that one prayer and one decision is the end of our story, but that we would be humble and empty and open to continuing to receive more of your spirit in our lives until it overflows out of us. God, I am so excited about what that would mean for for me and for us, what it would mean for your kingdom as we live this way, in the same way that your church lived in the book of Acts. May we be continually inspired by these true stories. Amen. Amen.